welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 145. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and with me this week, my usual semi-permanent co-host, on a round number episode, Jay, you made it to 145. Usually like I did. You know, one or two. So yeah. yeah. Jay Prestercelli, <laughs> CEO of uh, Zega Financial, is back with us. So yeah, welcome aboard, Thank Jay, you. again. Divisible by five. I like that. I like that. And congrats yeah. on hitting the 145 mark, Derek. I know that's yeah, a long-term no. goal. Get 145 and- in. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll we'll have. I mean, we'll have you back before then. But you know, maybe 150. We'll strategically plan it. Or if not, we'll do like, you know, we'll go like 149, 151, and then we'll do 150 anyway. So, um, and I and I will mention we have more listeners, a record number of listeners this month. Uh, still no people from Gibraltar, but I offer a free book for anyone listening there who can prove they're there, I will send it to them. But lots you know, going Derek, on in the market. It is the holiday season, right? I mean, I yeah. can't think of a better gift than the, the Broken Pie Chart book. Well, well, maybe second only to uh, Buy and Hedge, your book, Jay, and both available yes, on Amazon. Well, Order now, we should package early and often. Them. Like a nice yeah. deal, right? A nice, <laughs> and we could put a little, uh, put a little, <laughs> put a little uh, a nice little thing wrapped around it, and maybe a bookmark, a Jay and Derek picture of for a bookmark. Yes. That's, that seems like a new plan for us. I don't, I don't see why not. But do order early, <laughs> and if you uh, uh, speak uh, Chinese, uh, my book is available on that. And Jay, I think yours is available. Is it Malaysian uh, Mandarin, or yes, no, Mandarin? Yeah, oh, Mandarin. Mandarin. Okay, yeah, mine's probably Mandarin. I say Chinese, but yeah, it's probably Mandarin language. So that's uh, that's good. All right. Well, without further ado, let's lots going on in the markets, and you know we want to we want to do a whip around. We want to talk about inflation, corporate earnings, oil prices, maybe a little bit about volatility and this whole in, embedded COVID volatility. I'll call it. But one of the things that I've seen some discussion on, and I and I think it's valuable to go into, is the idea of you know all the time. People go on CNBC or Fox Business or Bloomberg, and they talk about results and and uh, and performance, and they typically quote a benchmark. But the idea of like, oh, you know, I return twenty percent when the market only returned ten percent. That sounds awesome on its face, Jay. But there's a little bit more to it, and it deals with risk. Like, there, it's not everything is equal. So let's start there. And some of the terms are alpha and sharp and Let's try and get into this a little bit. So, Jay, take it away. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, the 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 buzz term in our industry is alpha. Can you create alpha in your strategies? And alpha refers to the excess return you earned above the benchmark while considering the volatility of the portfolio itself. And so, think about it almost like a miles per gallon comparison, right? If you're going to go ten miles. In your, uh, uh, in your, in your, I don't know if you have a Prius, Derek. I'm just kidding. I know you have a Jeep. If you're going to go ten miles in your Jeep, which has, <laughs> which has terrible gas mileage, at least my Jeep has terrible gas mileage. Uh, if you're going to go ten miles there, and you know you have to burn up three gallons to get there, but and it takes you, you know, ten minutes to arrive. Okay, that's not great, but you got there in ten minutes. But if I could get there and use, you know, half the amount of fuel and get there faster. I'm kind of creating alpha, right? So it's miles per gallon and time that kind of add up to alpha. Maybe that's a terrible analogy. But think about it as, are you getting paid for the risk you're taking in excess of the benchmark? And alpha is 
it's in general, it's it's a little elusive, right? Uh, alpha is kind of that excess return refers to the idea that, hey, you shouldn't be able to beat the market if the markets are really efficient, right? You shouldn't be able to regularly produce growth in excess of the market benchmarks uh, while taking volatility into consideration. But there are managers that generate alpha. We have a handful of strategies that generate alpha, but it's one of those things that helps you gauge, yes, did the return uh, merit the risk that I took uh, to get there? And that's the general gist of uh, alpha and outperformance, right? You can uh, generate returns that are commensurate with the right amount of risk compared to your benchmark, but not beat the market, right? You could be in a you know low volatility strategy, and if you can make an extra you know one percent, but you took an extra you took off five percent of volatility out of your portfolio, you may have what's known as a positive sharp ratio, meaning hey, for the return risk you took, your return was worth it. But you didn't necessarily beat the market. You didn't beat your benchmark. Yeah, you were more conservative, but you didn't beat your benchmark. So you can have a positive sharp ratio. 1.00 is kind of the, the positive level for a sharp ratio. I mean, it was worth uh, the risk you took to get that return. But alpha is excess return. It's almost like you managed your risk and you made more money than you should have. That's what alpha generation is. Yeah, and, and just for everyone listening, uh, w- without getting too much too into the details, uh, we'll lose all the listeners if we do that. Uh, but alpha is based the formula for it. I'll go through it real quick: is the return of the portfolio minus the risk-free rate. So, what could you get for like a three-month treasury? Minus the beta times the return of the market minus the risk-free rate. The beta is really, um, you know, if, if the market's up one percent, you know, would you expect to be up? Two percent, or vice versa, and you know, I, I think it's. You said a couple of things in there, Jay, that we should stress. I mean, the, the idea of benchmarking. So I see a lot of lazy talk about that, where hey, I'm I'm in this portfolio and I return twenty percent versus the S and P. Yeah, but you're in all South African gold mining stocks. Your your benchmark should be whatever the South African gold mining stock benchmark is, not not the S and P. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think it is, and you said something else too about for the long term. And I think that's such an important point because it, it's fairly, I shouldn't say easy, but common for people to do this in short burst. But can they do it for the long term? Can they do it in different types of markets? And alpha generation, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if you have any stats. I should have asked you this before the broadcast, uh, and you can just say, no, I haven't looked it up and that'd be fine. But I don't think a lot of funds actually generate alpha. I don't know if you've seen numbers on that, Jay, or not. Uh, no, it's rare, right? There are, are, of course, the occasional. I don't have any, I don't have a breakdown, but it's rare to see uh, alpha, sustained alpha within a strategy, um, uh, especially funds, right? Mutual funds uh, or ETFs. It's rare uh, to see that. Um, I, you're right that. Um, when you can find alpha, it's actually uh, a pretty a pretty great thing, right? So it's like you've you've actually you know that's the I beat the market kind of an approach. Forget about what you actually made. Can you generate or did you experience uh, alpha? And that's exactly right, Derek. It's 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 unusual uh, because again, with efficient markets, you shouldn't be able to outperform the market on a risk adjusted basis, right? Markets are supposed to be efficient, supposed to find those things and iron them out, uh, and so you have to. You know, when you find it, it's it's uh, it's usually an interesting thing to talk about. 
I mean, if if the markets were so efficient and random, we wouldn't see people like Warren Buffett be in the business of of you know. Uh, and I don't, I don't know what his returns have been. Of you know, he tends to do better when value does better, and value hasn't been great for for quite a, a while here. Although it's had a little bit of a renaissance in the last year, but it would say that there would be a lot of different Warren Buffets if if markets were totally random. So I think there is skill and risk management, and really risk management is one of the key things here. Those that can manage risk. I think I have a better chance of of making it in the long haul. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I mean, you know, investing is always about risk and return. It's not just about the return and managing risk. Well, you and I have talked about this before. It's the only thing you can actually control. You can't really control the outcome of your investments, right? They could go up, they could go down, they could get more volatile, they could get less volatile. Um, But what you can control and identify before you make any investment is the risk that you take, whether it's um, you know, where you put a floor in your portfolio, uh, where it's how much you allocate to a strategy that's going to be more risky, um, where you have things like, you know, a lot of folks use stops, right? That's okay. Uh, having some kind of risk mitigation is important, and that's what you can control. And so one of the ways people do manage that sharp ratio, which is the first, you know, risk-adjusted return metric they manage, is managing uh, the risk first, Right. And now that could lead to, you know, positive risk adjusted returns. But managing risk is all you can really take, hoping that the market goes up or hoping that your individual stocks go up. You don't always know how that's going to go. Right. You don't know. And there could be some sort of news driven thing that drives it. And I'm sure we'll get to that in a minute. But, yep, it's always risk and return. The pair of those things together is what matters. And sharp ratio for anyone listening who doesn't know what that is. It's basically your return minus the risk free rate over or divided by, I should say, the standard deviation. And standard deviation is really sort of the volatility, meaning how much does your portfolio go up or down? Uh, and, and the idea is, you know, look, everyone would love tons of return with little or no volatility. Of course, that's, uh, that's a little tougher to, to come by. Uh, I, I do wonder too, I mean, I, I know mo- it's one of the things in the textbooks, most of these formulas and although you know alpha doesn't have it explicitly in it, it does have beta which which has components of volatility in it or, or standard deviation but uh, most of these are so focused on how much a portfolio moves i and i i think the the newer way of thinking starts to uh to challenge that a little bit uh, i'm i'm not sure you know like things like the efficient market hypothesis and, uh, you know, the whole, let's have bonds, let's have stocks. And I, I think sometimes, though, people lose sight of, like, what is it that your end client wants? What do they need, actually, is the better thing. And if you're managing only to reduce volatility, well, that's one thing. But I, I think the return is also, you know, it's, can you get somebody where they're going is what I'm saying, Jay. Yeah, and, and you, you're actually are taking it to the point of why we invest, right? Goal-based investing, right? What is it that I need to drive for a client's return, right? And if I need to make 5% for somebody, you know, as a manager, as an advisor, as what you do, Derek, the clients that you advise, you are going to get that 5% with the least amount of risk possible, right? You're not going for, well, I could make five here, but it could be, a, you know, a, you know a, a, I shouldn't even say it, a crypto-based portfolio because eh, it probably does average five, but it's going to be way too volatile for that portfolio. We know volatility is kryptonite to portfolio returns over time, right? That's just the way the math works. 
Uh, we could go through that if you want in a minute. But the concept of delivering returns that are needed versus the risk you're taking is really where um, the, the the investment process comes to fruition, right? I know benchmarking is, you know, we look at this and we go, oh, here's what the S&P did or here's what the aggregate bond index did. But it's kind of irrelevant. It may be irrelevant to you. If you only need to make 4 or 5% a year, you really don't care what the S&P 500 does, right? That's that's not your goal to beat that. Um, uh, there are probably many years that you just, you know, don't want the volatility of the S&P 500. So if your goal is, hey, I need to make 4 or 5%, 6%, you build a portfolio around that with the least amount of risk associated with that. I mean, that's just, that's that makes sense. But so many investors lose track of it because they get hung up on the I need to beat a benchmark, right? I should be doing better than the S and P, or I should at least be doing the S and P because I could just that's easy to buy. And and some of that is true if you're going to take the risk of the S and P. You know, most managers don't beat the S and P. You know, circling back to the alpha conversation. But you know, if 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 you're you don't need to take the risk of the S and P, then we don't care what that's how that's going to perform. The same thing works with the bond side of things, right? Right now, bonds seem to have a little more of a uh, a little risk associated with them in a rising rate environment. You know, can you go get five percent in the bond market today? The answer is not unless you're willing to take a lot of risk. Right in the bond market, right? You're going to go to high yield or junk bonds to try to get that. Um, and so you just have to weigh that. Is that really the way you want to go? Or is it a more protected stock portfolio with hedges, right? What is the way that you're going to hit those goal numbers? And so again, you know, what you can, what you can uh, control is your risk. And then your return target is the thing that drives how much risk you're willing to take or need to take. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh... I've got a couple of thoughts on that. One one comment quickly on on alpha, though. You know, when we think about risk and return, like let, let's say that uh, I take a bunch of risk and I have something that's super volatile and might be uncomfortable for some people, but I get let's say I get a twenty percent return and the market only returns ten. Awesome! I doubled the market, but is it really awesome? Well. If my beta is is around two, which means I'm twice as volatile, and I'm, I'm you know back of the envelope definition here, I'm about twice as volatile as let's say the S and P. I've only generated around one percent of alpha. Let, let's just assume the risk free rate is one percent, which is it's lower now. But if um, sorry, if, if my beta is two, yeah, my beta is two one percent. If if my beta though is the same as the market. I'm going to have an alpha close to the the spread between my return and and the S and P and and the risk free rate sort of for outside of the scope of this broadcast uh, changes that. But it's like you know how much turbulence do you want in the portfolio? And a manager, you can't say like I'm going to load up on all this stuff and triple and quadruple leverage and look at me, I I, I beat the benchmark. You have to pay for that in how much alpha you actually generated. Um, the other thing too, I would say, Jay, is you know, with historical measurements and metrics, let's say, uh, one of the reasons why for the things that we do with, with hedging downsides of portfolio and putting in a floor, you know, volatility and standard deviation, when you have extra volatility in the portfolio, both upside and downside volatility, is treated the same for the majority of this. But I got to be honest with you. If your portfolio is is returning let's say a nice easy, you know, 8% annualized and you have a, a plus 50% year, 
you're going to be more than happy with making an extra 50%. But believe it or not, that would reduce your sharp ratio. Remember, higher the sharp, better risk-adjusted returns. So I, I think it's, you know, you can go beyond this a little bit. And hedges, if you can limit the downside volatility, I mean, that's really the most important thing. You'll take all the upside volatility you can handle, right? You can handle it yeah, all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're, you're okay with that kind of volatility, right? And that, that is true, uh, that the, those metrics can be skewed by you know, severe upside outperformance. But you're okay with that one usually, like you said. Yeah, like who signed me up for that, right? If you were in a room of people and said, raise your hand, if you, we only make an X percent, but we're going to give you a, a plus 60% year, people would, with both hands, be buying that. Uh, speaking, by the way, of, of buying, uh, right now, the, now we'll, we'll get into the markets a little bit. Actually, let's, let's start here. And last couple of days, we've seen some retracements. And unlike for a while where we've seen a little bit of pullbacks where they've been bought and bought back up, Jay, this started the day after Thanksgiving, which is, we should talk about that because th those are interesting days. It, it's a half day. But anytime you have these shortened sessions or sessions right around major holidays, a lot of people take off, could be light volume, and they're more susceptible to swings. So... Any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I think it's, we've seen this a lot in our careers. Yeah, absolutely. The half days, especially, uh, we joke internally saying, oh, the B team is on the trade desk over at the market makers, which means that, you know, there's nobody taking any real excessive risk. They're following, you know, a prescribed, you know, set of rules for the day. They, uh, they aren't taking, you know, kind of any outsized bets. They're not taking large positions on. They're just, you know, keeping the lights on because the market happens to be open for a half day. Now, I exaggerate. I know not every, you know, main desk takes, every person takes off on a holiday, right? But just in general, you're going to get less um, less risk appetite and a lean towards uh, uh, more of risk taking off. And, and, you know, now that we're saying it, Derek, it might be worth us running a little, uh, a little historical on this and seeing, you know, on half days, you know, what is the general... Uh, trend are they generally lower or higher? Just you know, forget about what the rest of the market's doing. Uh, I'd be interesting to see what that looks like, but it's also a matter of volume, right? Light volume days can cause more uh, uh, exaggerated swings, uh, and uh, you know, you could see kind of an untrue uh, reflection of where the the volume and the the real levels are, and so. You know, I could think of a couple half days where things were relatively nasty, right? This past one was was obviously a pretty bad day, the day uh, right after Thanksgiving. But, you know, you look at the, the, the famous one, which is Christmas Eve in 2018, right? That half day. So I, thought, I think I saw a minus three and a half percent in a single day, right? And it actually, it was a half day, right? And so it was just, there was no volume on the buy side. It was all time to sell, meaning certain you know, needs and stuff like that. So, you know, Derek, it's one of those things that you have to watch out to not read too far into those days. Obviously, it was a news-driven day. It was a risk-off day. Uh, you know, the news being the first discussion of the Omicron variant of uh, COVID uh, was discussed in South Africa. And so now, you know, now that's, you know, starting to perforate through the rest of the markets now that we're a few days later. But generally speaking, those light volume days, there's a reason why we say volume is a confirmer or confirmation of price action. You need it to verify it. And on those half days, you just, you got A, bless people willing to, 
to move outside the boundaries and be just lighter volume from lack of work. I do remember Jay back, it was probably in 1996 or 95. No, it was 95. And I was on a a trading desk at an exchange place in Jersey City. And there was these office towers, but then you also had, there was a, a mall. And then beyond the mall, there was a, a parking, you know, a big parking area. And I remember these two guys uh, took a break and walked down and they just scoped out the parking lot. And basically they, they decided to buy because they said the parking lot was parked. I don't remember how the trade worked for them, but that was, <laughs> that was their expert analysis. A little lunchtime perusal of the, uh, the number of cars in the parking lot. I guess we call that... It's, it's funny you mention that. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, there used to be, uh, you could buy the satellite data that would take the pictures of shopping mall traffic. It's obviously less relevant these days. These days you buy web traffic instead. But, you know, hedge funds would buy the, you know, the satellite pictures of the parking lots of the malls, right, to see, oh, is it going to be, you know, extra foot traffic, which hence means uh, higher volume this Christmas season. We're not really using that these days, I don't think. No, not at all. We're, we're going to come back to the Omicron uh, piece and, and volatility in a second. One thing on, on a, one of the things I've noticed is, and this is, let's say, a potential positive for the markets. And by the way, we'll just sort of give you the disclaimer. Like we, we don't necessarily, Jay or I don't make uh, market calls. I mean, we, we buy large cap equity and, and we hedge it. And believe you need to stay invested because missing some of the best days every year could inhibit returns. But we're students of the market. And one of the things that I've noticed is net profit margins or operating profit margins, uh, you know, depending upon where you're looking at, in corporations, I think I saw a chart in, in JP Morgan's Guide to the Markets that Q3 of 21, it was like over 13% profit margins. And that was the highest it's been at least on their chart, going back to the early 90s. So, and then the other thing that I noticed is um, there, there's an attribution of what's driving price. And so year to date, the S&P is up about 21 and a half. Most of that was coming from earnings growth, not multiple growth. Um, but let's, let's start with just the profit margin. Jay, this is really interesting to me, and we'll talk about inflation maybe in this discussion, in this segment too, but prices are rising, but it doesn't necessarily mean profits are getting squeezed yet. Uh, right. And so I think maybe it's helpful to maybe break down a little bit, Derek, about these components of pricing change, right? So a stock can go up. Why? Because it's making more money and it's earning more revenue, right? Or there's a higher, uh, maybe higher speculation or, or aptitude or appetite, I should say, for that stock because of potential future earnings or, uh, uh, you know, and that's kind of what we call is the multiple, right? You can also manage it by uh, changing your share count, right? You could You could buy back shares and those kinds of things that also kind of helps push up kind of prices of the stock just because of supply and demand of the actual shares. But what you're, the point you're making here is that, you know, despite everything that is going on, you know, U.S. companies are making more money from a, from a margin perspective, right? Margin is, for lack of a better term, what you make minus what, what your expenses were, what you're left with is your profit margin. Profit margins are are driving growth more than we've seen. Actually, you know, I, I don't know. I'm looking at a chart for the last 20 years. It's the highest it's been on that chart. I don't know how much farther it goes back. You said you've seen it past, what, 30? Um, 
you know, this is one of those things that despite what's going on in the economy, companies are making money. And one of the things I always say, right, two things drive the market, interest rates and corporate earnings. And so it justifies why we were pressing up against all time highs again in November, because corporate earnings are justifying the value of the market. Yeah. And I, and I think also the earning we've, we've talked about this before you and I, uh, I think last time we were on the idea that the analyst estimates continue to be elevated, meaning they thought uh, or projected the earnings on the S and P would be X and it's turning out to be much higher. I think uh, it's over 200 for fiscal year 2021 next year. It's, I think I've seen some as high as 220 and, you know, 23. And by the way, that's, that's a long ways away. A lot of, a lot will happen before then, but it's pushing, I mean, 235, 240 now, some of the estimates. And that's, um, you think about, you know, all of the companies together, we're talking about on a per share basis on the S and P, but they've been revised up. Uh, Jay, the other thing I mentioned also is, uh, now, look, buyers and sellers determine what happens. More sellers than buyers, price goes down, you know, and end of sentence, period, stop, right? But uh, when we look at what is driving price, you could have multiples expand, which means, you know, your PE goes from 10 to 12 or 10 to 20 and earnings stay the same. Or you could have earnings grow and the multiple stay the same or the multiple can actually shrink. Year to date, minus 8.2% multiple growth, earnings growth plus 29.7. That, that's how you get to the 21.6% year to date price return in the S&P. I, I got to tell you, I mean, I, I don't think I've monitored this that closely over the years, Jay, but it's, uh, I don't think we've seen multiples contract and earnings grow driving price. I don't know if you've seen that before. Uh, it's not, no, that is not normally it. Normally while earnings are on the rise, there's also, you know, a high, a projection out in the future that they're going to rise more and people are willing to pay more for those earnings down the road. And that's the thing that drives multiple expansion. Uh, you're right, Derek. I don't, I can't really recall a time and I, in all fairness, I don't, this is not a data point. I watch all that often. I, uh, focus more on the actual, you know, earnings number that you mentioned, the two, two twenty. That is earned on the index. Actually, Derek, could you explain what that is when you quote the two dollar or the two hundred or two hundred twenty? Like, what is that? What is it that you're really talking about? Yeah, I mean, normally we say, okay, well, a, a stock. So at, let's IBM. Why IBM? It just came into my head. You think about, oh, we we earn ten dollars a share. Actually, I don't know what their earnings were, but I'm making it up. Ten dollars a share. And you say, okay, that's great. When when we think about the S and P five hundred. This is the number I just gave you. Imagine if if the S&P was just one big stock and you have all the number of shares of all the companies, you have all the earnings of all the companies all put together, aggregated together. That's sort of what you get. And so let's say earnings are, are 2,000, or sorry, 200, and the S&P was, uh, was trading at 4,000. So you would have a, a PE of 20 times earnings then. And so it's just, it's taking what we normally do with a stock and you just, you convert it to, uh, uh, on the index level. And so we say, you know, earnings per share. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's the dollars. Is it fair to say that it's the dollars that the index is going to earn a year? If you own one share of the index, here's how much you would get in, uh, uh, in, in, in earnings. Yep. 
Correct. Okay. I, listen, I just thought it would be helpful to understand because yep. people hear earnings and, you know, PE ratio and those kinds of things. And so, you know, as those, that earning number goes up from 200 to 220, uh, you know, dollars that you earn for one, you know, unit of the S&P 500, you go, well, I could pay a little more because earnings are going up. I'm going to get paid a little bit. And that ratio is something that is tracked by a lot of fundamental investors to say, okay, is the index, you know, expensive or cheap? right? Is me paying up for future earnings worth it right now or not? And typically, um, you know, while that is a driver of the market, when those look good, right, it, you get uh, investors willing to bet on that trend continuing and buying, even though they're buying it at an expensive price now, they're buying out what earnings will be in the future, right? That's what they say, multiple growth. So the multiple is the PE expansion, right? So you just gave an example of a 20 PE, but if you all of a sudden took that same set of earnings, Derek, of $200 and applied a 25 PE to it, right? That instead of the 20 PE, that is projecting from 4,000 to 5,000 in value of the S&P 500, right? So you say, oh, great. I'm going to ride the S&P from 4,000 to 5,000. That's a nice growth. That is multiple expansion because it hasn't happened yet, but you've got this expansion in projected uh, earnings. And by the way, just uh, on a forward basis, uh, this is also from JP Morgan's Guide to the Market. I'll put a link to this in the show notes. I think I think it's open to everybody. I don't know if you have to be an institutional investor or not. Um, anyway, I'll put the link in there. Forward PE is 20.91 times, meaning the market is currently trading at just about 21 times forward analyst projections, not actuals, projections, um, which is, it's higher than, than the average, but um, you know, neither of us make, make calls on uh, equity market pricing and things like that. Um, so that, that's a positive. Jay, the negative, you mentioned it in your summation of the, the post-Thanksgiving Friday trading, and that's uh, Omicron. And I, or some people say Omicron. Uh, I'm, I've been hearing a lot of people saying it incorrectly as the Omicron. It's not Omicron, Omicron. yeah. It's Omicron, right? The, the Greek letter is Omicron. So, yeah, I, I know it's, it's, uh, it's just one of those things. Pronounce it right, people, if you're going to go on TV and talk about it. Is that, is that weird? Should I not? I won't be a jerk about it. So let's, let's talk about it a little yeah, you, bit. You wait, you wait till you're on like Fox Business or Bloomberg or CNBC, Jay, and mispronounce it. Then, then yeah, the audience sure. will By be the way, letting, I, yeah. I have mispronounced things on TV before. I remember one time uh, <laughs> uh, we were doing one of those uh, after hour shows that you were involved with uh, at, uh, at Ameritrade and we were doing it on CNBC. And uh, I think instead of me returning, instead of me referring to the 11 strike price, I think I called it the 11 teen strike price. There's, oh, there's no 11 teen. Yeah. So yes, it can happen when you're on a roll, right? But uh, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't throw stones because I'll probably find myself mispronouncing it now that I've heard it the wrong way enough times. So that's how you pronounce it. And we'll, I'll just say, you know, you and I, when we discuss COVID and things like that, um, we're just thinking about the economic of the market. And, uh, you know, so lest anyone think we're not uh, discussing all the other aspects, we'll leave that to folks who know much more than than I do, at least. Uh, but I think it's one of those things where uh, we we were going back and forth, uh, messaging back and forth this morning, and I, I was reminded by a Ralph Acampora quote about uh, you know does price make news or does news make price? And sometimes when the markets move, 
if if you're going on and you're a prognosticator and you're on TV every day, you, you sort of have to like, why did price move? And you come up with a reason. Um, you know, this, let's just talk about the market risk for this. Uh, was this just price moving and, and uh, Omicron was the, uh, the reason? Or is this different than Delta strain? Was it different? I mean, I, I think it, it's to be determined because we're, we're hearing definitely mixed messages so far, Jay. Yeah, uh, look, it's, it's every time there's a, a, a news uh, uh, fear, news article or something that creates more uncertainty around the virus and the pandemic, um, the markets take a more defensive posture. Um, I, I would, you know, every time, and, I, and I, I did say this on my Yahoo interview last week, um, every time that we've seen the market dip due to, you know, COVID news and unsubstantiated or without a lot of facts behind it, the market has bought it, right? I think I said, while COVID is a human tragedy, it can create market opportunities. And, you know, like, is this going to be another one of those where there's a dip opportunity that you need to purchase? But it's, I don't know that yet. I mean, certainly uh, there's, it's added volatility to the market, right? We've had plus one. Or actually, yeah, plus one, minus two percent days from this, right? Adding uh, to things like the VIX expanding, um, you know. When you so, is it an event that's going to cause you know the market correction? I think the 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 jury's still out on it because we're in the middle of it. But so far, you know, four times before when there's been a you know a scare, uh, the uh, you know the the market has bought it relatively quickly. I might add, right? I mean. We've real. I think we saw what a six percent dip this year uh, was the largest dip we've seen here in twenty twenty one. All of those dips have been bought, and so you know if you're going to follow you know the, the the blueprint of what the market has laid out, it feels like this kind of news uh, and uncertainty should be bought, uh, and then you know decide on you know how severe is it really going to be. It's almost the opposite, Derek. Right, which is you know buy the rumor, sell the news. Um, in this case, there's no rumor. It goes straight to news, and it looks like an interesting opportunity uh, to be purchased. But you know, again, it's it's we're not making a call on the market. It's just it's been what the market has done this whole year, and even you know for the the, the, the second half of last year. I think in in volatility, let's let's switch to volatility for a second because that really tells the story of this market. And it's, I think I saw a chart that this iteration of volatility. So we had obviously the spike in, in February into March of 20. Uh, the VIX, the spot VIX uh, got up over 80 um, one of the weeks. And I think it's taken, this is the longest it's ever taken to sort of resolve itself back to the prior levels of VIX. I mean, we got down, I think we were below 14 uh, for a little bit, nah, maybe 14 was kind of the low. And if you look at, I think that, I think June, it's a little bounce there. Yeah. 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 June. And then, uh, you know, o- October was certainly a lows and then we've made, made these spikes. Now, every time we've spiked, uh, we tend to spike to the same levels and we've done that this time as well. I feel like though, that we've had a little bit of a COVID embedded volatility or a VIX premium in the markets. And it's, it's this, this extra premium, this extra price on, on options because the propensity for some news to come out or something to cause movement in the markets is there. I feel like this has been with us for a while, but, but we've been making lower lows in the VIX 
and the spikes haven't necessarily gone higher. But Jay, I, I think this is just, it's hanging over us, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, Derek, I agree with you. Um, in my time watching the, the VIX over the last 20 plus years, you know, when you, um, when you take a look at the spikes we've had this year up to, well, they've all stayed, pretty much they've all stayed under 30, had a little bit of a spike there in, uh, uh, in early January. But generally speaking, we keep popping up to that 30 level, 29 level. It's rare to see that happen and not have at least one or two 10% corrections during that year. So the fact that the market has been resilient, but this um, you know uh, uh, propensity to spike on the VIX very very quickly tells me that um, it's it feels like there's always uh, the jar the cookie jar is on the edge of the counter and it's going to fall off and all the cookies are going to spread all over the floor. I don't, I don't know where I got that one from. Let's maybe maybe I won't use that again. But the the idea here is that <laughs> the market is ready for something really bad to happen. And it keeps, the bears keep getting disappointed. Um, you know, Derek, I thought for one second, sorry, unscripted here, but I'll throw this at you. Do you want to explain a little bit, may I follow up with you, why the VIX goes up when the market is dropping? Well, it's the same reason why somebody would call their insurance company in Florida while a Category 5 is about to hit. Hey, I probably should buy this insurance. There is, uh, we hedge all the time, but we're not like uh, most people. Most people don't. And they find that when things start to unravel, that's when they start thinking about protection. And look, if there's a greater probability that markets will, will make a move that's, that's more wide or more, more volatile, the people who are selling that protection to you are going to have to bid up, or they're going to bid up that price. And so as we think about markets going down, there's this, this rush to hedge, to buy protection. And that protection goes up, like anything with supply and demand. So I, I think that's, that's a really basic definition, Jay. If you want to take it further, uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, you're right, right? There is a, there is a rush to buying puts. Um, it is the easiest, I'm going to say the laziest way to hedge. But, you know, it can be, uh, you know, if you're not in the business of being hedged on a regular basis and your model says, hey, when risk is high, you should hedge, um, then you find yourself rushing uh, through a smaller door to get into the hedge space. And guess what? It costs more if you want to expand that and get into it. And so what happens is there is a rush on um, not so much liquidity. But the market knows that, hey, we're seeing volume coming in and the market is in the business of charging the appropriate price. A price, And what somebody is willing to pay for that protection is what's going to define what the price is. And so as you have higher levels of, uh, uh, of fear and concern, even if no trades go off, premiums on the existing option chain will rise. Um, and the VIX is kind of a 30-day projection, right? It's a projection of volatility over the next 30 days, actually realized volatility, meaning how far the market moves. Um, and so the, there's a couple easy things to, to uh, remember when it comes to the VIX. If you have a VIX of 16, it tells you the average price move over the next 30 days is going to be 1%. If you got a VIX of 32, it tells you the average price move is going to be 2%, right? That's what you should expect, you know, most of the time. I think it's, you know, one standard deviation is 68% of the time. And so it's, it is a statistical data point that projects the future volatility. And so when people are getting scared, the cost 
of adding protection and removing volatility from the market has a, has a higher premium than it did before. For us, Derek, and we've talked about this a lot, and I know you said we're always hedged. We actually like when the VIX is low to add protection, right? We like to buy protection when it's cheap, um, whether it's throughputs or using long calls as a replacement for stock inputs. Um, we like when the premium is lower and we're adding protection. When you have weeks like this, not the greatest week to put on protection. But if you weren't hedged, you may be worth it for you to say, look, I'm going to you know, take a 5% risk on this hedge, but I'm going to lock in that I don't take any losses over the next 20 or 30 days. Right? Those are the kind of give ups that people are willing to do. And that will generally push option prices higher and put premiums higher, hence drives the price of the VIX higher. I think one of the things that's different about this regime of volatility is we've seen heightened VIX when the market was going up too. And that speaks to the idea of that, that overall that uh, I'm worried about the cookie jar falling off. I'm glad you workshop these things before you go on, you know, major news networks, <laughs> by the way. You're my, you're my, uh, you're like, you know, the comedian goes to the comedy club, you know, the, the, right. the, the one that everybody goes to, right? And they run the material by and when it flops, they don't bring it to the main stage. So sorry, you're, you're my testing ground for some of this material there. Yeah. I heard, was it George, Car both George Carlin and Robin Williams, who were doing tons of those HBO specials in, in the 80s, they would go to these little clubs and workshop material and they'd workshop hours of stuff. And yeah, no, that that's true. All right, let, let's talk a little bit about um, maybe another, I guess, a, a bearish thing that we're seeing. And that's that's the yield curve, Jay. And for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, when you look at the yield curve is, is imagine you draw a chart. And you say, what's the yield on the two-year treasury, the five-year treasury, the 10, the 20, the 30? I think you just plot that along a chart. And the reason why yield curves tightening or steepening matter, and by steepening, it means you would expect to see yields on longer-term bonds be higher or much higher than bonds nearer in. And when you see a, a, a yield curve that's, that's tightening, what happens is the the striation of the the yields across different maturities, so twos and fives and tens and twenties and thirties, they're all sort of closer together. Uh, Jay just recently uh, taking a look at the yield curve, for example, uh, the five year was about one point three six when I looked at this. The ten year was one point four three. Those are different today, but then you go to thirty years, and it was only one point seven eight. So the spread or the difference. Was, was pretty narrow there. Uh, if you go back to, let's say, oh, I don't know, August of uh, or December of 2013, 10 years were, were 3% and you know 30 years were a full percentage point higher. And that's even a little bit steep on the back end. And the reason I bring this up is simply that historically, when you see tightening of the, the yield curve being flatter across what the market is, the bond market is is saying, at least implying, is that it doesn't believe there's going to be as strong amount of growth. Um, so I think this was a an interesting development. We've been watching it for a while, but inflation also throws kind of a little bit of a, a different twist on this. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Jay. Yeah, I was going to bring up the inflation piece because inflation for so many years has been pretty consistent, just shy of 2%. We're obviously going through 
a much higher uh, period of inflation now. And the yield curve is actually starting to reflect that as well, right? Where you look at some of the nearer term uh, uh, yields, the two year, you know, as, as say, let's call that as kind of the one that we we see quoted the most, right? That one is actually, it is steeper that it is higher than what you would normally expect for a 10 year or a five year where they are today. So if the yield curve, you know, today is coming in at like, I'm not sure exactly where the two year is right now, but let's say it's around uh, 65, 70 basis points. You know, when you look at that and you go, okay, is it worth it for me to get paid 60 basis points over two years? Or do I go out 10 years and get paid, you know, 1.4% for that? You know, that is, you know, it's starting to reflect that, um, hey, we should expect yields to go up in the shorter term when that short term, uh, uh, the two years got a higher yield than what you would normally expect. Uh, example, going back to your 2013 range, right, when the, the 10 year was 3%, the two year was 38 basis points, right? That's a dramatic difference in what we're talking about today between 60 and 140, 60 bips versus 140 on the 10 year. So, you know, that that kind of compression there. Um, and that 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 higher push earlier on in the in the yield curve in the three month, the one year, the two years tells us that, you know, there's some activity that's coming. And then that, you know, the fact that it doesn't continue to ripple out and keep at that same you know rate of ascension on that curve tells us that, you know what, farther out, maybe things aren't as great and near term. We've got inflation to deal with. So I think there's two stories in the yield curve right now. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's it's definitely reflected in looking at the the tip shield, which is the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, and you compare that to the nominal year yield, so five year tips versus five year Treasuries, and that spread it's basically the what they call the break even, the difference between the two yields maturities was above three percent, and that's the highest I've seen that. And basically, in 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 just simple terms, the market thinks there's going to be uh, higher inflation over the next five years. Interestingly enough, uh, the break-evens are lower on the five-year forwards, meaning years, let's say, six through 10 versus one through five. So the market right now thinks there's going to be heightened inflation in the near term, and then it's going to ease. Uh, I did want to mention too, Jay, and, and you know we're seeing real yields. So uh, back in the napkin is you take the treasury yield, and then you you sort of subtract out the inflation rate. And so the 10-year treasury at 1.43% with inflation at 4.58% year to date, it's a negative 3.15% real yield, meaning if you buy a treasury and that's inflation, you lose your your purchasing power goes down. That's really low. I mean, we haven't seen real yields be this low since probably 74, 79. And it also sort of plays to you and I have talked about 60 40 portfolio replacements, you know, using hedges and, and building uh, synthetic portfolios that, that don't necessarily have to use bonds. I mean, the bond portion, Jay, on a real basis is it's really dragging inflation, which, uh, you know, and, and they've got a ton of duration risk. We've done this bit before, so I won't get into it too much, but Jay, it's worth mentioning that real yield is low. Yeah, I mean, I, I I would say it's a little more important than a bit, but I'm with you that we've covered this material. <laughs> and uh, the fact that, you know, you could buy a bond and you're losing buying power, you have to ask yourself, why am I buying that bond? Um, you know, traditionally speaking, and I know everybody thinks of this, uh, gold is has been the asset class people have used 
to help offset inflation, right? That's what people think about. Oh, if inflation's going up, gold's got to go up in value along with it. You know, the price of buying a loaf of bread today in terms of gold is the same as it was, you know, 30 years ago. Oh, I don't know if that's true anymore, but I, you know, those are the kind of quips we've heard. But believe it or not, if you take a look at returns on an inflation-adjusted basis, stocks actually do even better than gold in an inflationary environment. Of course, you know, if stocks make 10 and inflation is 6, your return there is 4, but it's certainly better than the minus 3 you're talking about uh, using treasuries today. Yeah, and it's it's why we like staying invested in, in U.S. large caps. And I think that's, uh, you know, the idea is if you can take away some of the material downside risk, meaning material meaning it's, you know, taking out a big chunk of the downside risk, that gets interesting. Staying in an asset that historically is, has done pretty well, except in, you know, real, even in severe inflationary periods, sure, the real return on stocks was, was a, a couple points negative, but it, they had positive nominal returns, uh, just looking at, at some of the data. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, Anyway, we I don't want to we'll do another segment on I'll call it a segment, not a bit. That sounds on bonds, maybe another time. I did want to uh, bring up. Yeah, I did want to bring up oil real quick too. Jay is that that's been in the news and we've seen uh, uh, President Biden announced he was going to release uh, barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. He announced 50 million barrels. Uh, you know, one of the things I'd point out on this uh, basically, we use about 18 million barrels a day. So if, if you were to just release 50 million barrels to the you know, U.S. Uh, landscape, that's about two and a half days worth of oil. And, and I won't get into the mechanics of how that happens. The other thing I would say is I, I did some digging, and it looks like U.S. refineries are at 93% capacity. I mean, you, you could dump double the oil that they're getting now and they only have minimal capacity. And then I went and I looked at the inventories versus rig counts. And for the you know people who are interested in this, uh, you can find all this information online. EIA has a, has a website on this. Uh, but you know, rig counts are down, which is natural because when oil drops in price, like it did in uh, in 2020, it, if your cost to get the oil exceeds what you can sell it for. There's no reason to, to stay in business. And so rig counts are, are starting to, to come up. Um, but inventories are, you know, on the lower side, uh, no, no doubt about it. But Jay, I mean, I know oil um, reached, it looks like about 60, well, it was almost 80 for a little bit. Now it's back down on the 60s. Comparing that price to some of the previous spikes, it's not that expensive, it, especially on, a, on an inflation-adjusted basis. But absolutely, I think we're seeing, you know, people are, are getting the raw gross number of dollars needed to fill up their tank, and it's, it's higher than it's been. So I threw a lot at you. I want to set the stage for just, just kind of talking a little bit about oil. Um, oil seems to matter when it matters, Jay. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that uh, while it's kind of floating around that, you know, $50 range, nobody's really harping on it one way or another, unless you're actually in the oil business. Um, I, listen, I'm with you, Derek. $60, $70 a barrel seems okay. It's always, it always feels like 
the pundits on TV will say it's usually, ah, the number should be about five bucks higher, right? So when it's 60, they say 65. When it's 70, they say 75. Um, I, I will I will maybe take a little different angle on uh, oil when it comes to um, how much it really plays into our uh, into our daily lives, right? Of course, we're filling up our tank. Uh, I think there's probably less driving. It, it'd be interesting to see kind of a you know miles driven kind of data point, you know, versus uh, 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 oil consumption. So not only do we are we driving less these days because so many folks are working out of their homes, um, there are also a lot more. Uh, um, fuel-efficient vehicles and EVs on the road that are also reducing that. Now, of course, heating oil is a whole different story. I do believe part of the reason why the strategic uh, petroleum reserves were released was not only just to help prices in general, but it was to help some of our international partners that need it because of they're just starting into the winter, right? And so I think it was more of a political, uh, a little bit of a, a political nod to our uh, international allies that, you know, hey, you need some oil, we'll release some into the market to help you guys out. Uh, but when you think about the daily cost of what you're spending on, you know, gasoline these days, is it really that significant of a piece of your overall spending, right? Let's say you're making, I'm just going to pick a number out of the book. Let's say you're making, you know, $100,000 a year. Is spending 20, 20 extra dollars a week at the pump because gas is a dollar higher from three to four bucks, is that going to make a difference, right? Is that $1,000 going to change? Eh, maybe, right? Probably not too much. You're not going to the movies less. You're not going out to dinner less. It's certainly not going to change your vacation plans. But I do think it does. It, it is an, an added expense. But when you think about the other things that are that are pushing your personal expenditures higher, uh, health care, where you live. Heck, if you rent right now, it's, you know, you know, you're experiencing higher costs there. You know, your taxes are going up. Right. So I know oils. It, it seems to be the poster child for inflation and higher cost. But I think in reality, the true impact to the U.S. economy isn't as big of a deal as the headlines might make. And listen, feel free to argue with me on this. And we haven't had this discussion. I don't know if we're in the same place on this. But, uh, you know, that is my general thought that, you know, the extra money spent at the pump uh, these days overall is lower. And it still probably isn't that big of a deal anyway. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, you'd have to do an inflation adjustment on on those prices i mean for sure um i would say i think people see it more though so when you when you go and you fill up and let's say it costs you 40 bucks and now all of a sudden it costs you 55 and it's you know depending on how much you drive you either fill up once a week or, or you know maybe maybe less i i think it's just it's so in, in people's faces that that they see it the the challenge of of uh gas prices also is um, and by the way, back back to your point, I think food is much more um, hurtful to people, I'll say, uh, because it's, you know, th- those when you go to the grocery store and all the stuff that you that you need is going up. I think that's that's more impactful. Um, but I also think some of the the challenges of getting things. And then the time to get things has also been problematic. Like if you were paying more, but you were like, oh, it's always in and I just order it and it comes. Um, maybe that would be a little bit different. Um, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. And, and the other thing too, Jay, is a lot of what people pay at the pump is, is taxes. 
and I don't, you know, I'm I, off the cuff. I don't have sort of a historical, um, you know, amount of taxes, but I, I just did some, um, <laughs> some quick internet research and Jay, we know everything on the internet is, is correct, but this is uh, an ABC affiliate. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. But I, I found a, a Sacramento, ABC Sacramento in California, and they said uh, before 2010, California drivers paid an, an excise tax of 18 cents a gallon. Um, and then I looked at the, this is from the Heritage Foundation or the Tax Foundation, sorry. And California now pays 66.98 cents per gallon, They're the number one highest state in the nation on, uh, on cents. So I think that's total state fees. And I believe there's a federal excise tax as well. So when we make all these comparisons, I think we've also got to keep in mind other things that, that are happening below the surface. And I'm not saying like all of a sudden, California just doubled their taxes in the last year. I actually, I don't know that. Uh, but there's more to it than that. And let's, you know, oil was 145 a barrel in 2008 after Katrina. And then it went down to 33, went up to 106 in, in June of 14, that came down to 26. It oscillates and it's it definitely impacted by supply and demand. Um, but yeah, Jay, I mean, it's, it's um, oil is not the only thing that's driving inflation for sure. Agreed. Agreed. I, by the way, I went on the longest road trip of my life in July of 2008 when oil prices were at 145 a barrel. I remember that. <laughs> my yeah, is terrible there. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> okay, the yeah, your timing was awful. Um, but it, you just talking about 2008 just brought something to mind, and it's the importance of hedging. And so airlines can hedge their their fuel costs by by buying futures or using derivatives or options on the futures. And I remember uh, was it Southwest hedged, and so their their um, their hedge adjusted cost. They got it down into like the $40 range of, of per barrel. I'm doing this totally off the cuff from memory. American never hedged. And so they were paying. And I remember Southwest, like their earnings. That's a great example of, of how you hedge. Like some people might be like, oh, why would you hedge? Well, guess what? Southwest hedged. And I don't know why American did or didn't do it. I don't remember what their financial situation was, but... Um, so Jay, you should have, you should have, uh, bought oil futures in, in planning your, uh, your trip. I, I should have, I should have. And you know, it's, it's, you know, you talk about the commodities market. They are the original hedgers. I love talking to, uh, you know, a natural gas trader or even a farmer when it comes to hedging, because they get the, 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 the importance of locking in prices and putting a floor in their portfolio or putting a floor in the value of the asset that they, you know, maybe yet have uh, to receive. And so, you know, that's always just an interesting topic to, to, to discuss. You know, they, they, they understand hedging better than say the average equity investor. I wish the average equity investor understood hedging a little more. I think that it could, you know, alleviate some of the fears and stop people from having to try to time the market uh, uh, just right to get the returns they're trying to get. But you're, you're right when you talk about commodities and hedging, they, they go hand in hand. Uh, finally, Jay, real quick, um, and then we'll, we'll sort of wrap up, is the idea of uh, a lot of our portfolios contain you know, U.S. large cap, S&P 500, and we also use very short duration, high yield, um, in some portfolios, it's hedged, and some and some it's not as a funding source. And it's it's sort of interesting. I mean, when you go back, and we and you 
something you, you touched on earlier is the idea that, that U.S. large caps or, or stocks have actually done okay during inflationary periods. You know, a lot of people ask us, uh, why do we use those two asset classes? So, Jana, if you have any closing thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, I do. So, the yes, the U.S. large cap is represented by, say, the S&P 500. That's kind of our standard go-to when you, when you talk about the U.S. large caps. You know, over time has really been the asset class that has outperformed. And I'm including, you know, let's say over the last 10 or 15 years here, right? So going back to 2006, I'm including small caps. I'm including REITs. I'm including uh, emerging markets um, that can have you know, outperf- high outperforming years. But over time, if you look back, large caps have been the number one, two or three performing asset class for the last, oh, I don't know, eight or nine years. Um, and so they've, and they've done it in a way that has less volatility associated with them, right? So tying all of this back together around, you know, returns and the risk you take, large caps continue to be, uh, to me, the golden child when you look at all of the asset classes. And we use it uh, for most of our equity exposure. And why do we do it? It's because it works and we don't always need to reinvent the wheel. We can uh, use what has worked historically. We don't have to be, uh, you know, picking the correct asset class or picking the the correct uh, sector within the asset classes. It's okay to use the large cap index as your base for investing. Most managers don't beat the index uh, and they take more volatility than the index does. So, you know, we, you know, we like to say using large caps uh, as a way of gaining exposure just makes the underlying asset choice easier. And then when it comes to income, yeah, short duration, high yield, high yield is, you know, it's for, for the most part is also performable. I think it's the third best performing asset class uh, with small caps being in the middle between large and high yield. And so when you look at that, the combination of those two for us has been, uh, you know, while each of those pieces are hedged in our core portfolios, we like to use the asset classes that have performed the best over time. It makes the selection a lot easier when it comes to how you invest. Well, Jay, with that, I'll remind everyone, if you want to get a hold of me and talk about how we manage portfolios or give suggestions on future episodes or guests, uh, go ahead and reach out to Derek.more, D-E-R-E-K dot M-O-O-R-E at Zega Financial. That's Z is in zebra, E-G-A, financial. And as I say, financial is up to you to, to spell correctly. Jay, thanks again for uh, for coming on and, and spending the time. Hopefully we'll have you on another couple of weeks as my semi-permanent co-host. Uh, the Felix Under. I'm targeting under, the 150. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you got to be on. I want to be here for the I mean, one fifty. I got to be here for one fifty. <laughs> we'll have some cake. Any, yeah, there you go, Jay. Any media appearances coming up that people should know about? Uh, yes, actually, I think uh, on December seventh at the close, I'll be on Fox uh, Business, and uh, well, actually, by the time this podcast uh, comes out, we will have already done a, a webcast uh, with WealthManagement.com about investing over the long term, but hedge. So, yeah, we'll continue to keep you in the loop on those, Derek. All right. Excellent. All right, everyone. Have a great week. Rather than uh, wasting time starring and and reviewing and all that, go ahead and share this podcast with someone that you think might find it valuable uh, or even those who don't find it valuable. Maybe once they listen, they'll find it valuable or they'll just not call you back. I don't know. Anyway, folks, we'll see you again uh, next week. Thanks, Jeff.